That chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters is the best sports bar in Navy Yard, located just across the street from Nationals Park. Also a great place to check out if you're headed to Audi Field. Make sure to check out their self-pour beer wall and unlimited TVs. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Swung on, hit in the air to shallow center. Call coming on, coming on. He won't get there. Drops in for a hit. This is going to score two runs. Throw in. Cut off by Williams, the pitcher. All of this happening after two out with nobody on. And three hits in a row for the Rangers. And two runs home. They lead it 4-1. to one. Otto's given up four runs in four and a third innings of work. He'll face Joey Manessis. And the first pitch is blasted deep left field. Back it goes. Manessis has another one. It's long gone to section 102. On Otto's first pitch, Manessis has his fourth homer of the year, his second of the night. It's now 4-2 Texas, as Manessis has accounted for both runs tonight. The 2-0. Swinging a blast to right center field. Way back it goes, and forget about it. It is long gone over the right center field scoreboard for Corey Seager. That makes it 5-2 Texas. Number 12 for Seager on Yoan Adone's third pitch. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, July 8th, 2023. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi Podcast. Mark Zuckerman is off for this installment of the show, but I'm pleased to be joined by the man who runs the show, Tim Shovers. And uh, coming up later in the show, Tim's conversation with Masson Orioles analyst, former Orioles starting pitcher, and LSU legend Ben McDonald. He's going to give us his insights on LSU starting pitcher Paul Skeens and LSU outfielder Dylan Cruz, the 2023 MLB draft in which the Nats, of course, have the number two overall pick. It's going this Sunday night. This is a big weekend if you're a Nats fan. This is an exciting weekend if you're a Nats fan, but This also is a weekend during which the Nats are facing one of the best teams in the majors. And the series did not get off to a good start. A 7-2 loss to the American League West leading Texas Rangers at Nationals Park on Friday night in game one of a three-game series. Nats now a full 20 games below 534-54. Second worst record in the National League. The home mark now is at just 13-32. The Nats have lost 32 of 45 home games this season, including now having lost 15 of their last 16 home games. It was really good to see Joey Manessis, aka Joey Fourbags, hit not one but two home runs on Friday night. So I guess you could say that the final score was Rangers 7, Joey Manessis 2. But, you know, Tim, it is something with this Rangers team. Five 
of the starting position players on the 2023 American League All-Star team are Rangers players. I mean, think about that. Five All-Star starters for the Rangers. This is a really good team, and uh, Friday night's game really ended up being not much of a game. No, right away they got to Trevor Williams, and even though Williams kind of sort of settled in, the tone was set right away. This offense is just giving the beleaguered pitching staff zero help whatsoever, other than Manessas tonight like you talked about. We're starting to see a lot of the similarities from 2022 when things were really, really bad every day. I know we just had that road trip, but you guys talked about how that four-game sweep against the Reds felt like a 10-game losing streak. That narrative did not change on Friday night. No, it did not. And since the 6-3 and three road trip, the Nats, of course, 0-5 on this uh, seven-game homestand to conclude the Nats pre-All-Star break portion of the season. And the offense has just gone ice cold. I mean, here are your Nats run totals over these five losses on the homestand now, uh, starting with that first game against the Reds this past Monday. Two, four, two, four, two. That's it. That's what you're looking at in terms of uh, total run scoring by the Nats. And keep in mind, one of those games uh, was a 10-inning game, that 5-4, 10-inning loss to the Reds on Thursday. And so it was notable that manager Davey Martinez for this game on Friday night made a number of changes to the Nats lineup, including having C.J. Abrams as the leadoff batter. I'm going to lead off uh, C.J. Abrams today. I'm going to give him an opportunity. I talked to him today. I want to give him a, uh, a chance to go up there and lead off for us, see if he could jumpstart our lineup a little bit. That was not the only change in the lineup. We had Luis Garcia down in the number eight spot. We interestingly had Riley Adams as an ad starting catcher and not Cape Ruiz. First time this season that Riley Adams starts two consecutive games. We also did not have Jamer Candelario as uh, he's still nursing that banged up right knee, got hit by a pitch on the right knee in the bottom of the 10th in that loss to the Reds on Thursday. And so Ildemaro Vargas was in that starting third baseman on Friday night. But look, lineup changes or not, this was another underwhelming offensive game. The Nats for the game, just the two runs, just six hits. Did get the two solo homers by Joey Manessis. We'll get to Manessis. But the other four hits for the Nats in this game were singles. Uh, the Nats drew just two walks, struck out eight times. I mean, this really was a, a lifeless offensive game for the Nats in so many ways. Like, sometimes we do see the Nats put a bunch of guys on base but not score. I mean, the Nats in this game went 0 for 3 with runners in scoring position. Three at-bats the entire game with a runner in scoring position. Yeah, you never took any threat seriously. The little threats that did exist, of course. Abrams getting a shot at leading off. I'm all for long-term plans and taking the important building blocks and assets and seeing what you have and where they're going to fit long-term because we know where 2023 is ultimately headed. But I got to say, I don't see C.J. Abrams right now, this current iteration of baseball player, anywhere near an everyday leadoff hitter. And I know he's a franchise shortstop of the future, but the one good thing that is going for the offense has been Lane Thomas in the leadoff spot. And to go to Abrams right now, um, sell me, Al, because I'm missing it. Well, the sell would be this. The elevator pitch would be this. If you really narrow things down to the last, say, week and change, C.J. Abrams' offensive numbers actually aren't bad. Like, if you look at what Abrams has done now in this month of July, and, you know, it's not like the month of July has been going on for weeks now, okay? But 
If you look at Abrams' bottom line numbers in this month of July, batting average 286, on base percentage 375, slugging percentage of 476. He, in this game on Friday night, did go one for three with a single a walk and a stolen base. But look, I hear you, and I am not gonna, <laughs> I am not gonna shout you down with what you just said. The overall body of work of C.J. Abrams this season is not good. The numbers are hideous. We've talked so much about that. I think if you're Davey Martinez and you're trying to find something with this team offensively and you see C.J. Abrams doing at least a little bit of something here over these last, you know, handful of games, just say, well, why not? You know, like what exactly do you have to lose? Now, you know, I said to myself before the game started, I'm like, well, Lane Thomas has been doing so well in that number one spot. Do you want to disrupt that in any way? Even though all that happened with Lane was that he was moved down to the number two spot. And on most teams, the best batter is in that number two spot. So that is, you know, an acceptable thing to do, a justifiable thing to do. And yet, Lane Thomas on Friday night went 0 for 4. And we're not used to him putting up offers. And I'm not suggesting that one thing led to the other, but it's hard to ignore that, right? Lane is killing it in that number one spot. You try to shake things up. You move Lane down one spot to the number two spot, and he goes 0 for 4. So it'll be interesting to see how long Davey sticks with this. It does sound, though, like Abrams is going to get a look-see here in the number one spot. This did not sound like a one-game thing, but we know that plans are always subject to change. Such as, uh, I believe, early 2021, didn't Davey Martinez say Victor Robles every day leadoff? I don't even know if that lasted until May 15. So consider me a little skeptical at the long-term prospects of this. Well, I mean, I hope he does well. I got to tell you, I mean, of all the Nats position players, if you told me, well, you can only have it so that one guy really does well the rest of the year, the one guy I would pick would be C.J. Abrams. Like, I think it's really important that C.J. Abrams works out. He is a key part of this rebuild. And, you know, it's been frustrating with the lack of success for him so far at the major league level. But the thing that I always try to tell myself is, well, you know, you're only talking about a handful of months for this guy at the major league level. And so, you, you know, we get sucked into the day-to-day because we follow this team like we do. And so many people listening follow this team on a day-in, day-out basis. But it's like, you do have to take a step back and say, well, you know, he's so young. He did not have a lot of time in the minors. And the overall sample size of him in the majors really isn't that big. What has been tough is that you just haven't seen much in the way of like, you know, even like glimpses of him doing well. But he has been better lately. You know, he wasn't bad on Friday night. And uh, you just hope like heck that he does get going offensively. But otherwise, I mean, like I said, just not a lot happening with the Nats on Friday night offensively. Not a lot happening here lately. Luis Garcia has not been doing well. He on Friday night down to the number eight spot. He went over three in this game. Mentioned Riley Adams getting the start at catcher for a second consecutive game. He went over four with a couple of strikeouts. But we did have Joey Manessis homering twice. And this was something. Bang! Zoom goes Joey Manessis. And the home run drought is over. So Joey Manessis came into this game having hit a mere two home runs the entire season. He, on Friday night, hit two home runs. It's amazing how baseball can work. Two solo homers for Joey Manessis. He and the Nats, one run first, hit a two-out full-count solo homer to left field to cut the Nats' deficit to 2-1 despite having been down in the count at 1.12. And Manessis in the Nats, one run six, a first pitch leadoff homer to left field to cut the Nats' deficit to 4-2. That homer went a projected 428 feet per stat cast. I said weeks ago, 
that Manessis, who had not homered, I said, okay, once he homers, he's the kind of guy you would like to think who he'll homer and then he'll catch fire. Well, that clearly did not happen. Maybe now he's catching fire. Maybe there was a delayed nature to him catching fire. But wouldn't it be great if all of a sudden Joey Manessis did find his power stroke? I mean, this team so could use that. Yes. I've been surprised at how much criticism there's been this year for Manessis, and I get it. You know, you make it to July 4th and your basically everyday DH has two homers. That's really bad. But despite the fact that he did not have any power the first half of the season, he still has been in, what, the top 10 in, in hits in the National League. As of a couple weeks ago, was hitting 300. That's now dipped to 280. He's still hitting somewhat at a time that he, quote-unquote, isn't hitting. So... I love seeing this tonight from him. Hopefully he does catch fire, kind of, of course, at a funny time as we're about to hit the first and only extended break of the season, of course. But as pessimistic as I was with Abrams in the leadoff spot, I'm almost as optimistic with Manessis and that he might find a power stroke this month and this summer. There's so much that we don't know about Joey Manessis as a major league player because, you know, look, like with C.J. Abrams, the sample size is small, but he was so good over the final two months of last season. I mean, he slugged well over 500. You say to yourself, is he really this low of a power guy with what we're seeing this year? I mean, Manessis, even with the two home runs on Friday night, is only slugging 382 on the year. I mean, his slugging percentage for the season is 101 points higher than his batting average on this season. That is not the way that that's supposed to go. 281 batting average, which is perfectly fine, but a slugging percentage of just 382, not a lot of home runs, you know, also not a ton of doubles for the guy, just not a lot of power that we've seen from Joey Manessis on the season. But uh, very good to see him go ahead and get the two homers on Friday night and just hope like heck that he gets himself going here. Hey, are you a law firm partner stuck on an underperforming team while the rest of the competitors are spending big and winning big? Well, unlike Mackenzie Gore and Capert Ruiz, you have options. You don't have to stay on your 60-win team. Nat's Chat sponsor Mason Kalfis and his team specialize in placing partners and associates at medium-sized and large law firms in Washington, D.C. and across the country. Mason Kalfis has recruiters in six states and has placed lawyers in more than half of the 100 largest law firms in the United States. While you may be reading doom and gloom from the legal press, many practices are red-hot antitrust, IP litigation, white-collar litigation, finance and direct lending, and healthcare, for example. Mason has worked with DOJ, SEC, and all kinds of government lawyers to get law firm partnerships at some of the most prestigious firms in the country. He also regularly works with partners at law firms looking to upgrade their platforms or brands to firms to better fit those partners' practices. Or sometimes, okay, let's be honest, often, Mason Kalfas works with partners looking for more money as a fair reward for the business that the partners are bringing in. Even in the quote-unquote slow first quarter of 2023, Mason Kalfas worked with three different lawyers who doubled the compensation their previous law firms were paying those lawyers. Because you are not under a CBA or team control for six years, in fact, staying at a firm too long is often a recipe for being underpaid. Explore your options today with Mason Kalfas. He is Scott Boris-like when it comes to law firm partner contracts, and Mason Kalfas will negotiate you a new and better contract today. Call Mason today at 202 486 
202-486-3535. That number again, 202-486-3535. Hey, Natchat. I'll be honest. I'm a fan of the theater and a fan of Disney Classics. So when I heard Lion King was coming to the Kennedy Center, I went to game time to find, quote-unquote, cheap tickets for the show while it's in D.C. during the All-Star break. Fortunately, using the promo code for Natchat, I didn't spend too much and got the curly W when it comes to planning date night. Game time is the fastest and easiest way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater near you. It's the fastest growing ticketing app in the country for a reason. Get images of your seat before you buy so you would know exactly what to expect when you arrive. Snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. Hitting 282, 20 doubles. There's a swing and a line drive. Base hit over the head of Garcia. Seeger will score from third. Thomas up with it, fires it into second. And stopping there is Josh Young on a base hit by Jonah Heim. Give him 59 RBIs. Was tied for fourth in the league coming in. The Rangers cash in. 2 0 Texas. The Nats offense is not in a good place right now. We don't know that that's going to be changing at any point anytime soon. Again, you know, you hope that it does. But, I mean, realistically, what's the path? And, of course, not helping things on Friday night was that the Nats' second-best hitter this season. If Lane Thomas is number one, Jamer Candelario obviously is number two. Candelario did not play in this game uh, off getting hit by the pitch on the right knee in the bottom of the 10th in the Nats' previous game. And you, you made a key point about this. You know, let's be honest. Jamer Candelario is the Nats' number one trade chip. The last thing the Nats need right now is, <laughs> is him missing any kind of time with any kind of injury here. Now, look, he only missed one game. He's sore. This does not sound like an injured list scenario. But yeah, you really don't want him getting hurt right now. Yeah, I was... Very surprised at how much time was given, you know, before the game. I believe the lineup was delayed because they were checking out Candelario in the cage. First and foremost, let me just say, obviously, his health is the biggest concern, but it's July. It's July 7. We're less than a month of the trade deadline, as you just alluded to. He is a big trade ship. His health on a day-to-day basis in this month is actually, you know, we're talking about that Kyle Schwarber trade was nothing a few years ago. And Kyle Schwarber was one of the best power hitters in baseball, but he was hurt in July. And so Mike Rizzo had to give him away for pennies on the dollar. And not that Jamie Candelario is Kyle Schwarber, but if Candelario's sort of hurt and limping around and not himself in the last few weeks, maybe you just get a single A prospect for him or something. Hopefully Candelario's back in the lineup by the end of this weekend, and this is all behind us by the All-Star break. But given that we've seen the Nats not be 100% truthful in the past with injuries, you have to keep your eye close on the situation, I think, you're out. It's a key point. You know, trading guys isn't always just about how well they're doing. It's about where are they health-wise. And yeah, you do not want him getting hurt. You want the Nats to get all that they can for him, whatever that is. I mean, I don't think anyone has any delusions of the Nats getting, you know, a top 100 prospect for Jamer Candelario, but can you get someone who could maybe develop into a top 100 prospect for Candelario? In theory, yeah. I mean, he's having a really good season. He should be an all-star. So we'll see. Hopefully he ends up uh, being back with the Nats and playing for him sooner rather than later. 
it is remarkable with this Rangers team. I mean, seeing what happened on Friday night, the Rangers in this game, seven runs, 10 hits, three walks. You saw the power on display with the Rangers smashing a couple of home runs, a lot of doubles in this game. Uh, The Rangers had four doubles. I mean, up and down the lineup, Corey Seager is having an excellent season. Adolis Garcia is having an excellent season. Jonah Heim is doing well. Josh Young is doing well. Nathaniel Lowe is doing well. Marcus Semien is doing well. You talk about like a lengthy lineup. The Rangers certainly have that. And you do the compare and contrast. And you see with the Nats, I mean, this season, it's basically Thomas and Candelario. That's the offense. Everyone else is not having a very good offensive season in at least some way. With the Rangers, I mean, I just listed a bunch of guys having good offensive seasons. There are others who have contributed to the Rangers as well. So it just really does stand out when you look at that. And, you know, falling victim to this Rangers lineup on Friday night was Trevor Williams. Now, Trevor Williams, we've come to kind of know what to expect from him. He's almost never great. He's usually not awful like he usually has you in the game. And Williams, I, you know, I guess on Friday night, ultimately, he had kind of sort of one of those stars. But the final line was four runs in six innings. Now, he threw four innings, only gave up two runs. Then top of the fifth, he gave up two more runs. So four runs in six innings. Williams for the game gave up seven hits, four doubles, and three singles. He issued three walks. He did have five strikeouts. But all of this added up to Williams over his six innings, throwing 110 pitches. Boy, that's a lot over six innings, 110 pitches, 68 strikes versus 42 balls. Top of the first, he allowed two runs, issued a leadoff walk of Marcus Semien, gave up a double by Corey Seager off the right field wall on a ball that was awkwardly played by Lane Thomas in yet another instance of Thomas struggling with a ball at or near a wall. Thomas is having such an interesting season defensively. He's been so good with the outfield assists. But when it comes to actually catching balls, there are issues, especially when it comes to balls at or near walls. Williams, in that two-run Rangers first, induced a one-out RBI ground out by Adolis Garcia for a one nothing Rangers lead. But Williams issued a two-out walk at Josh Young, and Williams then gave up a two-out first pitch RBI single by Jonah Heim to right field for a 2-0 Rangers lead. And then Williams in the top of the fifth allowed two more runs, gave up a two-out single by Nathaniel Lowe to center field on a ball on which uh, Alex Cole nearly made a tremendous diving forward backhanded catch. Uh, But Williams gave up a two-out double by Adolis Garcia to the left field corner. Williams gave up a two-out two-run single by Josh Young to center field for a 4-1 Rangers lead. And Williams issued a two-out walk of Jonah Heim. So, You know, it wasn't great. It wasn't hideous. Could have been worse, I guess, because the Rangers are that good offensively, but not exactly efficient. I mean, again, 110 pitches for Williams over six innings. Yeah, the only compliment I can give him is that he gave him six innings, which Davey Martinez desperately needed as the team hasn't had an off day all week. Great stat by Mark that he tweeted out in the middle of the game. Williams faced the top of the Rangers lineup for the fourth time. It was the first time since 2020 that Trevor Williams saw a lineup the fourth time through. Obviously, he rarely ever sees a lineup for a third time through. So eating up innings was the main call to order tonight. Would have liked to have seen him not give up those two runs in the first inning right off the bat, put the Nets on their heels. But if they had any sort of offense and had a different option coming out of the bullpen for the final three innings, Four runs might have given them a chance. They were borderline competitive with that start today. And so for one of his weaker outings, I guess I have to applaud him for not imploding 
which it looked for a second there like we might be heading before he settled down. The potential was there. And look, the potential is going to be there against this Rangers lineup. That stat that Mark tweeted out is funny because I don't think Williams facing the lineup for a fourth time was a function of Trevor Williams pitching really well. I think that that was a function of like what you just said, Davey Martinez needing innings, you know? So like, it's one thing if you're killing it, you say, wow, this guy's facing a lineup for a fourth time. But no, this is more like, we need innings. Our bullpen is taxed. Our bullpen isn't that good to begin with. So you go out there and you just do whatever you do, okay? But I need you to face this lineup, at least in part, for a fourth time. It was notable the Nats in this game only ended up using one reliever, and that reliever was the returning Yoan Adon. He is back at the major league level. Yoan Adon, who remember, was a part of the Nats rotation for a good chunk of last season. The Nats on Friday afternoon recalled Yoan Adon from AAA Rochester and optioned lefty reliever Joe LaSorsa to Rochester and Adon on Friday night pitched for three innings. Now, he allowed three runs over those three innings. Uh, he, in the top of the seventh, allowed two runs on two solo homers, gave up a leadoff homer by Corey Seager to right center field for a 5-2 Rangers lead, and then gave up a one-out solo homer by Adolis Garcia to left field for a 6-2 Rangers lead. That homer by Seager was a bomb, 423 feet per stat cast. But, I mean, that, in a nutshell, I think is a state of things. You know, the Nats are just trying to stay above water and make it to the All-Star break with the state of the bullpen, the state of the pitching staff. You know, we talked about this on the last show. This series, you're not seeing Josiah Gray. You're not seeing Mackenzie Gore. The Nats' three starting pitchers in this series are Trevor Williams in this Game 1 on Friday night, then Jake Irvin in the Game 2 on Saturday afternoon at 4.05, and Patrick Corbin in the Game 3 Sunday afternoon at 12.05. Now, Irvin's been pitching pretty well lately, and Corbin's been very up and down. I mean, the way Corbin's going, you expect the unexpected. So watch Corbin throw a two-hit shutout on Sunday, right? But, you know, on paper, this is a series that does set up for the Nats to have some pitching problems. And so you need your bullpen as rested as can be. And so at the very least, Adone uh, was able to be the only reliever who the Nats used on Friday. Yeah, Adone getting called up is... um... It's a representation of the sorry state of affairs with the bullpen. His numbers in Rochester are not very good. Whatever we saw in game 162 on Ryan Zimmerman Day in 2021 against the Red Sox, uh, we haven't seen really any of that since. I was not thrilled when I saw the news that Yohan Nadone was getting called up just because of what we've seen and the way his outing began tonight, uh, giving up a home run, didn't exactly change that. You know, like we just said with Trevor Williams, right? It's one thing you face a lineup for a fourth time because you earned it. It's another thing when you're forced to do that out of necessity. It's one thing when you call up a Joanna Doan because he's thriving at the AAA level and just banging down the door to the major league level. It's another thing when you don't really have others to whom you can go. And to what you just said about a Doan at Rochester this season, 15 games, all of them starts, by the way, still being used as a starter for Rochester. ERA of 481, a whip of 1.578, a strikeouts per nine innings of 7.9, which is okay, but, you know, not great. But yeah, I mean, Adone is not doing well at Rochester, and yet he gets summoned to the majors, and it's not a reward. It's more just, hey, we need you to throw pitches for us, and eat up innings for us, and that's what you got on Friday night. So yeah, this is an interesting weekend for the Nats from a standpoint of you have these games against the Rangers and hopefully the Nats get a win or two, but you also have the draft. 
which gets going on Sunday night. And, you know, we're not going to sugarcoat things here. What matters the most from this Nationals weekend by far is what happens on Sunday night. This is big. This is really big. The Nats having the number two overall pick. There has been so much discussion in recent days about what could happen at number one with the Pittsburgh Pirates. There is all kinds of stuff. There are all kinds of things out there about what the Pirates may or may not do at one. There's stuff out there about Dylan Cruz, whose agent, by the way, is Scott Boris, not wanting to be drafted by the Pirates and preferring to be taken by the Nationals and perhaps making big money demands so that the Pirates don't take Cruz at one. I mean, all sorts of stuff out there. It's actually uh, fascinating to follow and think about what could happen. But before we get to your conversation with Ben McDonald, so you've spoken with him, you've spoken with the great Jim Callis of MLB Pipeline. Mark and I have talked a bunch about the draft. Off your conversations with McDonald and Callis and others, if the Nats do have their choice of Paul Skeens or Dylan Cruz at two, do you think that there is a clear preference for the Nats? Well, I've heard both of them give glowing reviews about each player. I grew up in Atlanta in the 1990s, and it seems like Mike Rizzo has the same philosophy as me, which is when there's a stud starting pitcher available and you can get him, take him. And if Paul Skeens is available at number two, I honestly would be extremely surprised if the Nats were not to take this power pitcher who not only has he put up ridiculous numbers at the collegiate level, that it's very well in play that he could be in the big leagues in 2024. I mean, this is not like baseball. Oh, the Nats drafted Elijah Green or Brady House, and we'll see in three or four years. This is, we're drafting him in July, and he might be up in May or June of next year. So given that, I'd be really shocked. You know what's funny, though, about the 2024 thing? Because, I mean, I've said that, and I've thought about that. If the Nats aren't good again next year, do you want to be calling up Paul Skeens and burning a season of service time when you're not very good? You know, that's something to think about. So it may not matter if he's good enough to be up in 2024, but I hear you on that. He could be up in 2024, and he looks to be as major league ready as a pitcher could get. Like right now, okay, if you just dropped Paul Skeens into a major league game and had him make a start, like right now, this weekend, is there anyone out there who doesn't think? He could give you, you know, one run in six innings with 10 strikeouts. Does anyone think that that couldn't happen right now? Like, no, I think it could happen right now. Like, he could be ready right now for the majors. Not to say that you should draft him and put him in the majors, but like conceivably, you could do that. You know, we know that Skeens is being talked up as being the best pitching prospect since Steven Strasburg in 2009. What I'd love to know is... Do the Nats look at Dylan Cruz in a similar way, i.e., well, he's the best outfield prospect since X, you know? Or is it Skeens is at a higher level in terms of how special he is as a prospect, you know? So that's one of those things that you'd love to know internally what the Nats see. I think, generally speaking, the safer play is the great position player versus the great pitcher because pitchers break. But again, We don't know to what degree the Nats view, say, a Dylan Cruz as special. But both of these guys, monster seasons for LSU. Paul Skeens, 19 starts, 122 and two-thirds innings, an ERA of 169, a whip of 0.75, and he averaged 15.33 strikeouts per nine innings. And then Dylan Cruz, he played in all 71 of LSU's games in the 2023 season. He finished with a batting average of 426, 
an on-base percentage of 567 <laughs> and a slugging percentage of 713. Those are video game numbers, okay? Those are the kind of numbers that uh, Tony Armis used to put up in RBI Baseball on Nintendo, for those of you who played RBI Baseball back in the day. But Dylan Cruz won the 2023 Golden Spikes Award, which honors the top amateur baseball player in the country. He is the second LSU player to win a Golden Spikes Award. The first was Ben McDonald. And we're going to take you to that conversation in just a moment here. But we certainly want to invite your thoughts on what the Nats should do in the 2023 MLB draft with that number two overall pick. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. You can check out our website too, natschatpodcast.com. Get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A salute to the man responsible for the music of the Nats Chat Podcast, Tim Newmark. Check out his website, timnewmark.com. So for Tim Shovers, I'm Al Galdi. We will talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we leave you now with some terrific insight on Dylan Cruz and Paul Skeens from Ben McDonald. Ben McDonald came to LSU in the fall of 1986 as one of the most celebrated athletes in Louisiana high school annals. A three-sport letterman at Denham Springs High School, McDonald played both basketball and baseball in his freshman year at LSU, helping lead the hoops team to the NCAA Elite Eight and the baseball squad to the College World Series. As a sophomore, the six-foot-seven right-hander concentrated solely on baseball, and he emerged as one of the nation's elite pitchers. He earned 1988 first-team All-America honors, becoming the first LSU player in 14 years to receive that designation. Please and honored to be joined by someone that plenty of baseball fans of Maryland are quite familiar with, Ben McDonald. Ben is part of the Orioles' Mass and Broadcast and pitched in the majors from 1989 to 1997. But we have Ben on today because he is the perfect perspective for Nats fans who are eager for the MLB draft. Ben was a star pitcher at LSU, first overall pick in 1989. You can see why his opinion on Paul Skeens and also that of Dylan Cruz as well carries a lot of weight. Ben, first off, congrats to the Tigers. Seven titles in roughly 30 years. Top program in college baseball, year in, year out, it feels like. Yeah, you know, it, it was a while for LSU. I mean, it was a 19th trip to Omaha for LSU, and the last title they won was 2009, so it had been a while, you know. And uh, Jay Johnson came over from Arizona, is in his second year at LSU, and, man, he is just a tireless worker, the new head coach. And uh, he takes the Tigers in his second year to Omaha, and, and they figure out a way to win the whole thing. So a lot of excitement down here on the Bayou right now. Tigers are national champions for the seventh time, which is just awesome. Let's start with Paul Skeens. Let's get right to it. The floor is yours. What is your scouting report for Paul Skeens? Take him tomorrow if you wanted to, and you could plug him into the big leagues. And look, that's a mouthful, and your viewers might think I'm crazy, but that's how good I think Paul Skeens is. I mean, you got to go all the way back to Strasburg, where we've seen these kind of numbers put up in the collegiate game and what he does. And for your viewers that don't know Paul Skeens, he comes from the Air Force Academy. He pitched his first two years at Air Force and, and transferred to LSU last year. It's a military mindset. It's a body that you dream of at 6'6", 247 pounds. He's a former catcher, closer, and two-way player of the year. He was the John Olerud two-way player of the year last year at Air Force. He hit like 18 homers, 
won 10 games on the mound. Of course, he came to LSU this year, was only going to pitch. Not that he couldn't hit a little bit, but he could. But LSU was deep enough from an offensive standpoint they didn't need him to hit. They didn't want to risk him on Friday nights. But, look, it's elite stuff. I mean, his fastball climbed about five and a half miles per hour from last year at Air Force to what he's doing this year. And that's on an average. And so to give you an idea, I think there's one guy in Major League Baseball, one starter right now that is averaging over 99 miles per hour per pitch. And that's what he's doing over the course of about 115, 20 pitches per game. It, it's elite. It's been up to 103 miles per hour this year. Not only is it fast, it's got about 17 inches of horizontal run to it, which is basically the width of the plate. So it's fast, it's accurate, and it's got a lot of movement to it too, which is a wonderful combination. Let's say it's a random game in the middle of the regular season, a Friday night against, let's say it's Arkansas or Mississippi State. You talked about that fastball. We've seen him hit 100. Let's say it's the fourth inning of a random game. It's a random half inning. What's his fastball looking like then? It's it's still over 100. I mean, I saw him pitch nine times this year. I saw him in a super regional just about two weeks ago on the 123rd pitch. He was at 101. On his 123rd pitch in 95-degree weather with the humidity being 90%. That's what it is. A lot was made nationally about his pitch count in June. Did you have any issues with his pitch count in any starts? No. And for the people that say that, don't know what they're talking about, to be honest with you. Here's what you got to remember. College pitchers are on a seven-day rotation. Big league pitchers are on a five-man rotation. So Paul Skeens pitched every Friday night. And so he got six full days to recover before he went back out there again. Jay Johnson and Wes, John uh, Wes Johnson, did both of them did a wonderful job with Skeens this year. And they actually, when he went up on his pitch count in the regional, I know what people are talking about, they actually took him out a start before that earlier. He only threw 80-something pitches, and they got him out of a ball game on purpose because they knew they may extend him a little bit more in that regional that he pitched in. And so I was fine with it. He got extra days rest. What's the first thing he needs to work on and improve his first day when he reports to whatever team drafts him? I just think experience. You know, I mean, he can fine-tune all of his pitches, and I think just learning the league is going to be big for him. I'm not worried about his work ethic at all. Like, again, he comes from Air Force, and people say, well, Ben, how did he gain five and a half miles per hour in his fastball in one year? Because this time last year, Paul Skeens was projected as a early second-round pick to a back-end first-round pick this time last year. But he averaged 93 miles an hour at Air Force last year. And so – what he told me was, he said, first of all, when you're at Air Force, you do Air Force things. And he was getting up 530 every morning at Air Force doing Air Force things, you know, doing what cadets do. And what time he had left over, he dedicated to baseball because that's what you do when you go to Air Force. Then on top of that, he was a two-way player. So he split his time that he had in baseball two different directions. He comes to LSU. He gets more sleep, for one thing. He's not hitting anymore. They get him on a real weight program that's designed specifically for what pitchers do to make him better. He instantly picked up three miles per hour by doing that. And then by the time spring rolled around, Wes Johnson, the pitching coach, had cleaned up the mechanics a little bit, got him a lot smoother, and there came another two and a half or three miles per hour. You know, And so I think he needs to throw his change up a little bit more, but he showed me something in his last start against Tennessee. He's, he dominated this year fastball slider. Threw a few changeups, about 4% changeups all year long. But he recognized that Tennessee was jumping on his fastball right away. What does he do? He reaches in his back pocket and he throws 16% changeups. And I'm not talking about an average changeup, a really good changeup. He has multiple pitches that he says, okay, if a hitter's trying to attack me a certain way, 
I can reach in my back pocket and I can attack back in a different way. So it's a real three-pitch mix for him. And the occasional curveball, too, that I think with a little bit of work, he'll have a real four-pitch mix. Over to Dylan Cruz, Golden Spikes Award winner. What's your scouting report on him? Always been the dude. To me, he's the best position player in the draft this year. And Wyatt Langford may have something to say about the number one pick, too, the kid out of Florida. But what I love about Dylan Cruz is this. He turned down first-round money out of high school to come to LSU. He wanted the college experience. He turned down $2 million. He wanted that experience. He comes here. He wins a national championship. Ever since the kid's been 15 years old, he's had a bullseye on his chest because he's always been the best guy. He's always been the guy every pitcher was going to give his best stuff to every time and try to get him out. He went into this year as being the number one pick, and he had to live up to that. And we've seen kids kind of back up in their draft year when the expectations are at the highest. We've seen kids kind of back up in some ways. Dylan Cruz took two steps forward this year. You go look at batting average. He hit, I think, over 420 this year in the toughest conference of all college baseball, the SEC. He hit homers again. He can run. He's a guy I think that could stick in center field all day long. He is a legitimate center fielder at the big league level. His swing decisions, right, from his freshman year got a lot better. He quit chasing the ball in the dirt, quit chasing the elevated fastball. And that's what you want to see is growth, right? How does he get better? He's always had to pop. He had 18 homers his freshman year. He backed up with 21 homers his sophomore year. But he walked about 20 more times this year than what he struck out. So his swing decisions are really good. And what I love about him is – he can use the backside of the field. It is not pulled with Dylan Cruz. As a matter of fact, I think at the pro level, they're going to want him to get the bat out in front a little bit more. But a lot of his home runs, a lot of his doubles and triples have come to straightaway right center field the opposite way because he lets that ball travel. He lets it get really deep, and then he's got the hands to power it you know, out of the ballpark the opposite way. And so another kid that works extremely hard, another kid that gets it, he's always been the professional approach for me. He almost plays the game like a big league, like he doesn't show a lot of emotion. He just comes to the ballpark every day. He's never missed a start. He's been in the lineup for three straight years at LSU. So he's a durable guy that plays a premium position of center field. And he's a big leaguer all day long. There's no doubt in my mind. If you were Pittsburgh, you were the number one pick. Who are you taking? It's a great question. So, you know, and the question for Pittsburgh would be, all right, are you looking to take the best player? Or are you looking to cut the best deal? And we know now what we see goes on a lot at the top of the draft. A lot of times deals are cut, right? There's a kid by the name of Wyatt Langford, which everybody's you know supposed to be the number three pick in the country. He didn't even play at the University of Florida his freshman year. He got four at-bats his freshman year. He couldn't even get on the field. And then all of a sudden last year, his sophomore year, he turned that into 26 jacks last year. Came out of nowhere to get to the top of the draft this year. He had a hell of a year this year, too. He's a center fielder, too. But I like Cruz better for a couple reasons. One, Cruz is a more proven commodity. He has done it. Team USA, like I said, since he's been 15 years old, he's performed at a high level. So if the Pittsburgh Pirates are truly looking for the best position player out there and money doesn't matter, for me, it's Dylan Cruz all day long. I don't think there's a question. Now, some people have said that the Pirates, and of course, Dylan Cruz is represented by Scott Boris, who I was represented by Scott Boris. Some people said the Pirates don't want to play full slot value. And maybe they don't. And if that's the case, maybe they're trying to get schemes for a haircut. Maybe they're trying to get Wyatt Langford for a haircut. You know, and maybe they go to Langford and say, listen, slot value is nine and a half. We're going to pay you seven. And you're going to be the first pick in the country. We're going to save two and a half million dollars. And we'll roll that into a high school kid in round two or round three. And we'll steal him away from the college game. So if you're the Pittsburgh Pirates, if you're looking for a pitcher and that's what you want, that's a no doubter. Ben, thanks so much for coming on and joining us. Really excited. Your insight is second to none on this. 
And I look forward to shaking your hand one day at Camden Yards and, and thanking you in person. Look forward to it. Thank you. Paul Skeens goes back to work in the second and gets his third strikeout. Van Zane dead in the third baseman in the five spot.